Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes back Justin Bankston to continue We Love Rock Docs with a look at the turn of the millennium documentary, The Filth and the Fury, The Sex Pistols, and The Great Rock and Roll Swindle. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and tonight I'm joined once again by Justin Bankston as we continue our series, We Love Rock Docs, with a look at The Filth and the Fury, a documentary about the Sex Pistols. Justin, welcome. Thank you. I'm stoked to be here and stoked to talk about this movie. Yes, excellent, because a lot to cover here. This was a movie made around 2000. It was directed by Julian Temple, who's the same guy who had directed The Great Rock and Roll Swindle, which was Malcolm McLaurin's take on the Sex Pistols that I want to say came out in 79 or 80, um, which totally misrepresented the story of the band in a really ridiculous manner that this film uh, just sets out to correct that record. Did they succeed? Well, I guess it depends on who you ask. <laughs> I think I think you know getting the whole story about a band like the Sex Pistols is always going to be in the eye of the beholder at the end of the day. Very true, very true. Uh, a lot of chaos and an incredibly well documented band for a band that was only around two and a half years. There are tons of live recordings, tons of film footage. People knew it was a big deal from the very get-go. Um, even Malcolm McLaurin, who never seemed to grasp that this was actually a great rock and roll band. I mean, that's the whole premise of the rock and roll swindle is, ha, 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 I took these lepers who couldn't play their instruments and I conned these record companies into paying them all this money by engineering these fake controversies. But the thing is, it really wasn't fake. This was a genuine response to a really dire situation in England, 1975 had the worst uh, unemployment levels since World War II. In England, they'd had massive garbage strikes going on for 10 years. You know, the streets were filled with garbage. It was just a really dire time. And as Johnny Rotten says in the movie The Filth and the Fury, I don't think you can explain how things happen other than that sometimes they just should. And the sex results should have happened and did. Yeah. Yeah, this is one of the great protest records, uh, and it's great because it rocks. It's a great rock and roll record, but it's also one of the most pointed and most specific and most localized protest records you could ask for. And it's that, as much as anything that Malcolm McLaren made, I think he did, that made the Pistols so such a hot button issue in England is that this record was razor sharp that like what they were saying was razor sharp, the way they delivered it rocked and it was going to have an effect on people. And, and so the fucking squares reacted that they did and, and overreacted and totally swamped the band in the wake of it. And there's some that's been bugging me ever since we taped the New York dolls documentary last time. 
And that was this quote that Arthur Killer Kane, the bass player for the New York Dolls and subject to the movie New York Doll, made was that he saw the purpose of a rock and roll band as making people happy. And Johnny Rotten explicitly says in this movie, this this band, Sex Pistols, was not about making people happy. It was attack, 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 attack. And that is, I think, the key distinction between the Dolls, who were a proto-rock, proto-punk band, who really just wanted to express the good time they were having in New York's glam scene in the early 70s, whereas the Sex Pistols had a definite political and aesthetic agenda that was a radical break with what had come before, even though the music is actually, I don't want to say retrograde, but very traditional rock and roll. I mean, very Chuck Berry influenced Glenn Matlock, the primary songwriter was super influenced by the who and the small faces and the kinks and infamously the Beatles, which is what McLaren and others told, uh, you know, the British press was why he was fired. Um, but, but we'll get to all that. Let's start with the, the context. Um, yeah, this was, a dire time in Britain. You'd had the glam rock movement, which was an early 70s sort of escapism in a way to ignore what was going on um, economically and politically. But by 1975, it had just gotten to a point where at least John Lydon felt, you know, you couldn't ignore it anymore and that he was disgusted with the pop culture moment. And, you know, one thing that John Savage, the chronicler of punk rock, one of the chroniclers, but I think the best, um, points out is that, you know, it's often attributed to being this reaction to prog rock, to Emerson, Lake and Palmer. And yes, which they were definitely out there. That, that was in a way a reaction to that, but it was really more of a reaction against things like the starlight vocal band and Elton John and Kiki D and this really, twee brand of pop that was dominating the scene. This is the age of feathered hair, the Bay City Rollers, and just completely denial of reality, which, as Johnny Rotten points out, um, was dire. Yeah, and don't forget the Eagles. Yes, yes. Like, I, I, I thought the same thing, and I, I thought this, you know, I didn't say this last week when we were talking about the Dolls, but, you know, whenever you talk about this reactionary uh, aspect of punk rock and it's absolutely reactionary people always want to say that it's reactionary as you said to like prog rock and long guitar solos but in i agree with you it's reactionary to the the general like rhinestoneification of rock and roll in the 70s whether it's the eagles or the starland vocal band or whomever you know poco and on and on it just got like more and more uh, lame, you know, and 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 the Chuck Berry just fell all the way out of it, which is why, you know, as a reactionary music, punk tends to be like more of a 50s focused, you know, straight up rock and roll thing, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah, and also with a big heap and helping of early 60s British hard rock kinks and who um, are abs- absolute key essential components. And let's, I guess, switch and talk about their background a little bit. The, the, the movie lays out the context. Um, it also mixes in a lot of footage from Lawrence Olivier's portrayal of Richard III. A ton of British music hall comedians are cited <laughs> and shown in the movie, and we'll get to the relationship of that in a minute. 
but um, it's just a well-crafted film that edits in a lot of pop culture footage. They've got they open the film with this shot of a sort of hapless '70s polyester suit wearing weatherman with a comb over, struggling with those. They had those foam boards before we had all digital screens, and he would have little foam clouds he would stick, and he's trying to get his cloud to stick and can't. And um, you know that kind of sets up the the pop culture context that re they're reacting against. Then they go into talking about the background but before we get there let's go ahead and play our first song and this is anarchy in the uk this is live from 1976 with original bassist glenn matlock an early live recording of Anarchy in the UK with Glenn Matlock. And you don't have to listen to this very long to, to discern, well, these guys could actually play. They weren't virtuosos. They weren't doing anything fancy. It's three-chord rock and roll, but it's a tight band. Paul Cook's a very tight drummer. Jones and Matlock, a very tight guitarist, a bass player, and Johnny Rotten, a, a unique voice. So McLaurin's whole premise that this is this band of hapless, you know, ne'er-do-wells who literally can't play their instruments – that might have been true in their first couple of rehearsals, but within the year, by mid-'76, they're, they're the shit-hot live band, and they're really starting to make an impact. But let's go back talk about their backgrounds. Jones, Cook, and Matlock all came from West London, the Shepherd's Bush, Hammersmith area. Shepherd's Bush is where the Who came from, very working-class West London area. And then John Lydon came from North London. Um, and from an Irish immigrant family. And there's some footage of his mom, and you can really see she's a really sweet-looking woman, and he talks about how she was this positive influence on him. But the tragedy of his early youth was he was in a coma for a year from meningitis. So it's kind of similar to Ringo Starr and his various ailments that put him in the hospital for multiple years. Whereas, like, Steve Jones comes from not quite a broken home. He was raised by a stepfather, but thinking that the stepfather was his father and had to sleep in a camp bed at the foot of his parents' bed. So uh, a lot of working class stuff. Glenn Matlock um, lived, you know, walking distance from Wormwood Scrubs, then from his prison where Keith Richards did a day or two in 1967. So very hard bitten time. And even though it was only a decade from the time that Pete Townsend and John Entwistle had been roaming Shepherd's Bush, the economy has gone downhill so fast from 65 to 75 that the Sex Pistols had a very different experience growing up than the Who did and are much angrier and bitter than anything we saw from the 60s generation of rock bands. Yeah, there's you can like take in footage of like mid 70s England from pretty much any source you want and it's going to be depressing. Yes, it, it's, um, you know, unless you're just watching the David Bowie concert or something, this stuff is <laughs> is going to be very depressing. And that's where the music comes in. They, they show um, some footage of Roxy Music on top of the pops. And, you know, Steve Jones talks about how music was all there was for him, that that was the lifeline, although he didn't see it as something that was doable. He saw musicians 
as these gods who descended from the skies. And, you know, when you're looking at something like Brian Ferry and Brian Eno in full flower or David Bowie with his spiders from Mars, full flower as Ziggy Stardust or Mark Bolin as T-Rex. I mean, obviously it seemed far away and remote and these, you know, there was no sort of street scene that the, the, the Discos had killed the club market for rock bands, so it wasn't like the 60s when the Beatles could literally make a living and buy cars just from playing dances in Liverpool. By the mid-70s, there was no market for live music, um, not, especially not by semi-pro or amateur bands. It's a big difference between the 60s and the 70s is these 60s bands got to earn their chops just working and playing dances. By the time, by the 70s, it was sort of a big deal to put a rock band together, and this is where there is some truth to McLaren's claims to have created the Sex Pistols, is he did kind of assemble them. Jones and Cook had a band with their friend Wally Nightingale, uh, whose idea it was to start the band, and who actually could play guitar. And um, they'd been rehearsing. They start bugging Malcolm McLaren, who had this shop on the King's Road selling Teddy Boy gear, started bu bugging him to manage them. He did take the time to go see him practice. He's, the first thing he says is, Wally's got to go, and Steve, who had been the singer, you've got to play guitar. You're not the singer. So that's so far so good. And then he uh, introduces them to a clerk at the store who's Glenn Matlock, who's a very, very talented um, bass player and songwriter, and he becomes the primary songwriter of the Sex Pistols. So again, brilliant moves so far. And then the real coup de grace is there's this gang of kids they call the Johns from North London, and John Lydon is one of them. Also is John Beverly, later Sid Ritchie. And I'm forgetting what Jaw Wobble's name was, but there was another Jaw who was, becomes Jaw Wobble, the bass player for Public Image Limited, uh, post-Sex Pistols. But they're coming in, they're hanging around, and John Lydon is such a notable figure. Um, I think infamously auditioned for the band wearing his I Hate Pink Floyd shirt, where he had taken a Pink Floyd t-shirt and written I Hate across it, which now sounds like a totally stock move, but at the time it was absolutely outrageous and brilliant. And then a big thing they leave out of the movie is that Bernie Rhodes, who goes on to become the manager of The Clash, was McLaren's assistant at this time, and he claims he's the one who spotted Lydon and... Um, that it was his idea to recruit Lydon, and he is the guy who hired the rehearsal space. So Bernie Rhodes should get some credit, but I guess his karma, since he's the guy who talked to a strummer into firing Mick Jones and, and um, <laughs> the uh, super talented drummer for The Clash, um, you know, <laughs> he did The Clash Copper. about as bad, yeah, as McLaren did The Sex Pistols. So, um, and also the secret ace in the hole is that Steve Jones was a professional burglar, and because they were close to the Hammersmith Odeon, He'd been breaking in there for years and stealing equipment from the likes of David Bowie and Bob Marley. And so he had a fully set up, you know, you look at the Sex Pistols, they've got Les Pauls, they've got great amplifiers, they've got a great PA system. From day one, Steve Jones has outfitted the band through his larceny. Yeah, that's that's not too shabby. No, that's a real skill. And he, <laughs> he directly brought it to the band. And, and you know, I think that speaks to something authentic about the Sex Pistols, because say what you want about about them, but Steve Jones and Paul Cook are just stone, working-class, rock-and-roll dudes. I mean, they... Yeah. they you know, They're Jones hooligans. Is, yes, hooligans. I mean, retrograde, sexist, the whole bit, but they were ready to fight. They could... They stole stuff. They were just, you know, absolute wild men. Anyway, they find John Rotten, or John Lydon, as he was originally named... They talk him into auditioning. He's had 
no thought of being a singer in a band. He, according to him, wasn't that big of a rock and roll fan. His his mom was a big Alice Cooper fan, a big T-Rex fan, a big Irish folk music fan, and he shared those enthusiasm with her to a degree. But um, unlike Steve Jones and Paul Cook and Glenn Matlock, he's not living and dying um, dreaming of being in a rock band. So he's kind of put off. He auditions by miming along to Alice Cooper's I'm 18, and immediately they say, this is the guy. Uh, Steve Jones is a little skeptical, but everybody else is gets it. John John Lydon is somebody special. And, you know, and this is where McLaren's infamous quote, you know, I didn't think if I could be a sculptor, I necessarily needed clay. I suddenly thought you can use people and it's people I used like an artist. I manipulated creating something called the Sex Pistols was my painting, my sculpture. And then, you know, they cut in this movie to Rotten immediately harumphing that and saying, you don't create me. I am me. There's a difference. And Steve Jones saying, everybody knows on the planet knows Malcolm's full of shit. The problem is when the great rock and roll swindle came out, nobody knew that Malcolm was full of shit. And tons of the people that were slightly older than me, the late period baby boomers, my big brother's coterie, they saw the great rock and roll swindle because they were curious about the sex whistles. And to a man, they believed it. They didn't check out the record. They believe what they saw, which was the band's own manager says they can't play. It's all just a joke. It's this nihilistic put on. Um, and it's a real disservice to the band and to everybody. Yeah, that, that movie. And what's really a bummer about it is that, you know, Jones and Cook were like in cahoots the whole time on it, you know. Yeah, as was Sid Vicious, um, yeah. you know, totally participating. And, and that's yeah a painful thing. But let's hear our next tune. This is I Want to Be Me. This is the B-side to Anarchy in the UK. And that was I Want to Be Me, which was the B-side to Anarchy in the UK. And I skipped a quote that I should have started with that this is from Johnny Rotten. And and he says, you know, what you've seen in any documentary about any band before or since is how great and wonderful everything it is. It's not the truth of it. It's hell. It's hard. It's horrible. It's enjoyable to a small degree. But if you know what you're doing it for, you'll tolerate all that because, quote, this is the money quote, the work at the end of the day is what matters. We managed to offend all the people we were fucking fed up with. And like he said, the work is what matters. And that's what communicated to me. Like, I didn't actually hear the Sex Pistols until like 1985 when I was a sophomore in high school. And I can remember driving around in my buddy Greg's Pinto, listening to that cassette tape, and I really felt naughty and wild and dangerous. I mean, this is six years after the, or seven years after the band is broken up. All I knew about him was I had seen a couple of old High Times magazines that one of my brothers had, and they would have these pictures of Sid Vicious doing offensive things. And, um, you know, and I, I knew the whole, oh, it's punk rock, but the music immediately grabbed me and, and it was right up my alley and, and definitely served the purpose. I mean, the music has stood the test of time to the degree that anything from that era has. Oh, absolutely. Like it's as a record, it stands up. They only made the one, but 
it's it's such an important record because of everything about it when it came out all the and and really in in so many ways because of exactly what he said because it pissed off all the right people you know my favorite thing about this movie is all the upset adults yes and it's it's something that we you know you had to be there in 1976 and 77 in britain to see just how pissed off and freaked out people were but there was a full-blown moral panic i mean allegedly the sex pistol stole sold more newspapers for the tabloids than the armistice ending world war ii did so you know it's this gold mine for the tabloids and the british tabloids are notorious you know and so it's one of these situations where these guys are just kids trying to put together a rock band. And sure, John Lydon has a political agenda and things he wants to say, but really has no intention of declaring civil war on Britain, which is kind of how the Sex Pistols were taken. And they were in the unfortunate position of being much more famous than they were wealthy. Um, literally had no money, even though you know the, the, the operation has some money, but none of it's trickling down to the band. So kind of a dire situation to be in. A couple more things I want to mention that they left out, which was one of them was the role of Jamie Reed, who's the graphic artist who did, designed the famous cover for Nevermind the Bullocks, did all the graphic arts. He's also the guy who educated John Lydon about the Situationists, who are a group of radicals in France, heavily involved in the attempted revolution in 1968, and really kind of planted the seed in in John Lydon's head of how to convey these ideas, which he already had, but how to best convey this stuff. And, and, um, you know, that's kind of the magic. But that they talk about, you know, how they, they're rehearsing and they famously did, um, you know, songs by the Modern Lovers, Road Runner. They did songs by the Who, Substitute, uh, a couple of Small Faces songs as well. But it's when they start writing their own stuff that it comes together. And, and they all three of the original members, Cook, Jones and Matlock, agree that, you know, we had a certain spirit is what Matlock said. We had something, but what we didn't have, we didn't have a way of putting it into words, which is what John had. So even though they didn't like the guy at all, I mean, from day one, it's shouting, screaming, rouse in their rehearsals. They all respected each other and acknowledged that um, Rotten had a special gift. And Jones is the one who named him Rotten because of his teeth. And, um, you know, it's, it's one of these situations where everything they do immediately makes a difference i mean most people have been in bands nothing you do makes any difference at all it's just you know throwing rocks into this endless bottomless pond and no ripples make it to the shore but the sex pistols immediately made an impact they played their first gig at glenn Mac matlock's art college and you know immediately steve jones recognizes wow this is it you know the whole universe has come together this is everything i want um this is magic and immediately there's a reaction and immediately there's people gravitating to them and they're creating a scene, you know, and Rotten talks about this, like, you know, one week we'd go and we'd play and there'd be a bunch of people in the crowd wearing flares and having long hair. We go play again next week and half those people have cut their hair short and now they're, they're punks. And, you know, you get Sid Vicious and Lydon's crew, um, you know, Sid Vicious becomes the number one fan. He, he invents the pogo dance. Uh, he assaults Nick Kent. And they don't mention in this that Nick Kent had actually rehearsed with the band before Lydon came on the scene. And Lydon had, had exiled him from the circle. 
And then there's also the Bromley contingent, which is like Susie Sue later, of course, forms two of the Banshees, Banshee, Susie and the Banshees, Steve Severin, who's her right hand man in that, Billy Idol, who goes on to form um, Generation X, one of the big punk pop bands. There's Shane McGowan, who much later goes on to form the Pogue. So there's this whole movement that comes along. And one thing they don't mention in the movie is that the Clash open up, make their debut opening up for the Sex Pistols. You know, Joe Strummer had been in a pub rock band called the 101ers right before this happened. So it immediately has this change effect on him. And the Damned debuted um, for them. And that happened on July 4th and 6th. And on July 5th, everybody in the punk scene, including the Sex Pistols, goes to see the Ramones, who play a legendary uh, set that's recorded for the live album It's Alive. And that's an interesting thing, because John Lydon has nothing but negative things to say about the New York scene. And a lot of that is because of what happens to Sid Vicious and because of the negative influence of Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers when they bring heroin to the punk scene in, in, in England. But on July 5th, 1976, John Lydon's just another awestruck kid in the dressing room of the Ramones at the front row of the stage. So the the influence of the Ramones in the New York scene, and particularly Richard Hell, who was doing the same look Johnny Rotten did earlier. And it's unclear to me whether Rotten had any way of knowing what Richard Hell was up to in New York, but definitely thinking thinking along the same lines. Um, thoughts on the coalescing punk scene? It is interesting that the, the Brits tend to downplay the fact that so much had been going on in the States to sort of predate, you know, what they were up to. But there's no getting around the fact that the Sex Pistols is a purely English phenomenon. You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And and it's extremely Johnny Rotten-esque for him to just, especially since he wasn't writing the riffs and, and you know, the, the influence was on the people writing the guitar parts, right? That's where that's who, who are picking shit up from the yeah. American punk rock bands. He's just coming at it from this whole, you know, skewering the status quo with this project thing. You know, that that funnily enough is what McLaren says he's doing, but really it's Johnny Rotten who takes this perfectly great punk rock band who are influenced by all all the punk rock that's coming out of New York and coming out of the states. And he, you know, notably the Dolls and Johnny Thunders, and he tacks onto it this extremely potent, you know, anti-fucking everything that's happening right now message that makes it what it is. Absolutely. And these bizarre stage mannerisms. And uh, the thing that was revealed in this movie that was very clarifying to me that I had no inkling of because Johnny Rotten just seems to come out of nowhere. I mean, literally nobody in rock and roll history before him had a performance style, anything like this. But when he explains and when they show the footage of these British music hall comics uh, and TV, you know, they're coming out of the music hall tradition. Most of them were TV comics. They weren't really music hall comics by this point, but he's coming out of this tradition of British music hall, you know? And when you see these guys, it's obvious. Ah, that's what he's doing. And he's throwing in a little bit of Olivier as Richard the Third, 
and he's doing this big piss take. And that's what Rotten is, you know, kind of at pains to explain is that there's a lot of humor in the Sex Pistols, a lot of satire. And that since he knew he wasn't, you know, a six foot two handsome Elvis Presley kind of guy, he couldn't do that whole, you know, Mick Jagger, Rod Stewart, Robert Plant, look at me, I've got a big willy and a hairy chest and I'm going to be a golden god. Couldn't do that. So what he did was, um, you know, reach for a source that was at hand, which is this British um, comedy tradition, which is one of the great traditions in the world. Obviously, Monty Python is the one that people know best for Benny Hill and so many others. And, you know, Arthur Askey and all these guys that they show in the video. And that to me was just like, <laughs> boom, light bulb, light bulb over the head moment. Like, that's where Johnny Rotten came from. Yeah, it is really fascinating that, you know, we got this really potent rock and roll music and he, as you said, completely purposefully and intellectually like takes like Benny Hill's moves, you know, and puts them on the stage in front of this roaring rock. band. <laughs> and it is funny, but it's also like, it's agitating and it's, it's irritating, you know, and it's, it's hard to wrap your head around, which is kind of like what he does. Yeah, uh, he turned it into this potent political and cultural message. It just went off like a bomb. But let's take a second to hear from our sponsors. When we come back, we'll talk about the Sex Pistols' commercial career and their dealings with the record companies. And so the Sex Pistols start doing gigs and mainly playing um, art, art schools and other things. McLaren was pretty clever in that he tried to not book them in traditional rock and roll venues so much. But... At the same time, I mean, they played the 100 Club, they played the Marquee, they played the Nashville, they were playing the London club scene such as it was at the time and were drawing attention. They were they had this cult following immediately. They had a distinctive look that pe people were picking up on. So it was obvious that something was happening. And that triggers this bidding war. And the documentary has all this footage that, that um, Julian Temple captured in the 70s, originally for Great Rock and Roll Swindle, with all these A&R guys. It's not just EMI who signed them or Polydor who offered them a gig, but um, you know, it's, it's people from multiple labels, including Dave D., who I don't know if you caught that, but he was the guy who you know was bragging about how he had to go back and see him three times just to be sure they were as bad as he thought they were. And this guy was in possibly the worst band of the mid-60s, uh, Dave D., Beaky, Mickey, Tinch, and something else. I mean, just dig into it if you want to. If you're into 60s pop at all, they have a couple of okay records, but just mountains of unbelievable crap that was hit records. And he, by this point, is a De Decca Records A&R guy, just crapping all over the Sex Pistols, which I find really risable that a guy who's in, you know, one of the worst bands in British history uh, is crapping on on the Sex Pistols. But, you know, Chrysalis was out there, Polydor, all these record labels are looking at him. Um, McLaren finally gets serious. He hires an attorney. They trigger a bidding war between EMI and Polydor. They get this great contract with EMI. It gives them total creative control. They go in the studio. Initially, they're being pushed to record it live and under a lot of pressure. They're not digging it. They reject the first takes. They bring in Chris Thomas, which I think is the most brilliant move made. I mean, that's the one thing about the history of the Sex Pistols is McLaren might have screwed everything up. But they got Chris Thomas, who's best known for um, being the engineer on Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. He'd also produced a couple of Roxy Music albums. So not the guy you think of when you think of, you know, raging punk rock record making. But because he was such a craftsman in the studio... 
he was able to work with them and create this really masterpiece record. And, you know, there's documentaries on the making of the album. And Steve Jones does so many guitar overdubs on this. It's a real work of art. And and you got to give Chris Thomas massive credit for putting it together. Yeah, it's really a, a, a well-crafted record. And, you know, Jones not only plays guitar on all of it, he plays 85% of the bass, too, uh, which is one of the things that I think makes the discussions about all the various bass players kind of interesting because basically nobody's heard Glenn Matlock play bass or Sid Vicious play bass like at all if they've been listening to this record and that's what they know about the Sex Pistols. Yeah, I mean, Matlock definitely played on Anarchy in the UK. There's different yeah, accounts yeah, as to whether or not he played on it at all because they make this tragic mistake of firing him right around this time. <clears throat> which is just insane. Like this is the guy who single-handedly wrote pretty vacant, every bit of it, lyrics, guitar intro, everything. And, you know, I knew he had written the melodies and the, and the main chord structures for the songs. I didn't really realize that he wrote pretty vacant all by himself, which McLaren, the fact that McLaren not only allowed him to be fired, but actually manipulated Johnny Rotten into wanting to fire Matlock by lying. You know, he's acting like Brian Jones, you know, the way Brian Jones would tell Keith one thing and tell Mick another and try to stir up trouble. That's not what a manager should be doing. You know, that's that's a totally destructive force. And you just don't fire the guy who writes all the hits. That is the stupidest um, possible thing. And but that goes back to the fact that McLaren, I think, believe, he would, he loved the smell of his own farts enough that he believed his own shit that this band wasn't a real band, right? Yep. And and so to him, the fact that Glenn wrote everything, who cares? Because it's garbage anyway, and it's all my big, you know, sculpture. So he just doesn't get it. He doesn't know anything about music. No, although, you know, in the documentary um, that's on Amazon Prime and elsewhere about the making of um, Nevermind the Bollocks, and part of, I think it's called the Classic Album Series or whatever, it's so funny to see the Sex Pistols in the same series as like Steely Dan's Aja and, and albums like that. But McLaren acknowledges that Fiery Matlock was a death blow and that they never could recover. So on le some level or either after the fact, he, he did recognize that. But And it is interesting, though, because... The way Steve Jones plays bass on that record is very different than what Matlock would have done. Matlock's a perfectly good traditional bass player. He goes on to play uh, with an Iggy Pop album. He puts a band together called the Rich Kids right after this with Midger, later of Ultrawalks fame. That's got some solid tracks. And so, but he wouldn't have approached the bass the way Steve Jones did. And so, what we have is this monumental legendary rock album and so much of the credit goes to steve jones musicianship not just on guitar but on bass anyway they get on emi they put out anarchy in the uk they start a little tour and then they get invited to go on the bill grundy show which was um a evening program live shown live in london during tea time and uh they're booked with this guy who's a notorious drunk. He, he, in the eighties, he's ultimately fired from the BBC for being a drunk um, and screwing up a documentary. He's lit in the afternoon. Steve Jones is in the green room drinking all the beer in there. And so they have this confrontation. It's like a British pub confrontation between the angry young punk and the, and the old drunk. And uh, you know, it just spirals completely out of control. There's obscenities. Grundy makes sort of a, crude pass at Susie Sue. There's another girl sitting there with a swastika armband. 
um, which is a pretty unfortunate thing that has not aged well at all. And I don't want to make light of that. Like, I think the Sex Pistols were ultimately expressing a very positive and progressive vision. But some of the iconography and some of the homophobia and sexism that Steve Jones in particular engaged in, Sid Vicious and Johnny Rotten both uh, threw a lot of homophobic slurs, especially in the American tour. So I don't want to make light of that stuff, but they weren't Nazis. They were strictly using the swastika to shock people because this was a point when I guess the National Front was ascendant, but even the National Front at that point didn't openly uh, embrace Nazi iconography. So they were just trying to shock and offend people. They weren't expressing a coherent political thing. But anyway, it, it looked bad, and it becomes this huge moral panic. That's when they're all over the tabloids, the headlines, the filth, and the fury. And, it, you know, it's just crazy. They've got Steve Jones saying, I loved it. You know, I derived, let the circus begin. But later on, he says, you know, if we hadn't done the Bill Grundy show, we would have been a lot better off. That if we hadn't fired Glenn and we hadn't done the Bill Grundy show, we would have been a lot better off. But at the same time, would they have accomplished what they wanted to do without creating that big shitstorm? Yeah, that is, there's kind of a crux there where, I mean, that, and it's so funny when you watch this, and every time you watch some adult, quote, on this thing, commenting about it, it's the same story where they just completely don't get it. But this guy's such clearly a, a, a troglodyte, and, and they're, you know, they're idiots in their own way, but, like, it's so clear who's, like, more of a together human being, right? And it's the kids. Yeah, uh, yeah. But, but you know, Steve says fuck on the BBC on live TV. Like, what are you going to do? People are going to yeah. freak out. And, like, <laughs> uh, and it, it that's, that's what created this, like you said, the, the papers were making so much money on these, these sex pistols. But what's amazing to me is as it goes on and on and you see all of these wide lapel motherfuckers on TV talking about the sex pistols, it's it's shocking to me. It's not shocking, but it's, it, I find it always amusing that the adults, right? These are the people who are educated and they know what's going on supposedly, but they don't know enough history to know that if you're the one saying this new art or this new music or this new youth movement is garbage and is a problem for our country, that in 10 years you're going to look like an asshole then how much of an adult are you? How much history do you know? How much are you paying attention at fucking all? Yeah, I mean, they're they're like gleefully jumping into the Pontius Pilate role, or you know, I mean, and and like the, this quote from the the movie, they've got this guy who is a, a London conservative counselor, Bernard Brooke Partridge, and this quote he says, most of these groups would be vastly improved by sudden death. The worst of the punk groups, I suppose, currently are the Sex Pistols. They are unbelievably nauseating. They are the antithesis of humankind. I would like to see somebody dig a very, very large, exceedingly deep hole and drop the whole bloody lot down it. Which, in one way, it's brilliant rock criticism, the kind you just can't write anymore. That, that you know, somebody like Nick Toshis or Lester Bangs <laughs> might have been dropping, you know, on a band. But at the same time, it's a totally vicious evil thing to be saying about a bunch of 19 year olds who are just trying to make music and express themselves. I mean, 
he's literally calling for their deaths. And he's it's, literally calling for their deaths. And, yeah. you know, it would be totally different if Lester Bangs was doing it. He would say, this band is so terrible. Plow them under. Yeah. And it would be about, it would be based on his extremely well-considered opinion on their music. This guy is just saying, as human beings, these young people should be killed. And that's fucking insane. Yeah, that's totally evil, and it's the kind of crap we're seeing now in America. But let's go ahead and hear our next song. This is Did You Know Wrong. This is another B-side. This was the B-side to God Save the Queen. Did You Know Wrong, the B-side to God Save the Queen, the Sex Pistols' infamous second single. But before we get there, they um, try to do this anarchy tour, which they'd already booked. They've got Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers, The Clash and The Damned opening up for them. Uh, I think The Damned get fired fairly quickly in that tour. But the Sex Pistols themselves only get to play between three and seven of those gigs. They had to go to all these godforsaken places in the middle of nowhere to get paid. But most of the time, the city council or whoever banned them from playing, although they would let the other bands play. So, you know, it's turned into the circus and it's and it's already damaging the music and what they're trying to do musically and creatively. And then EMI drops the band because there's such political backlash. Like they've got people uh, working in the factories who are refusing to package the anarchy in the UK single. Um, they've got you know these counselors calling for their deaths. They're being banned all over the place. So EMI folds because they're this huge conglomerate. So it's not just the record company, which you know the people at the record company wanted to stick by them. It's the people that are making you know microchips and toasters and stuff who don't want to deal with this. And so they're dropped. They um, make the decision to fire Glenn Matlock and bring in Sid Vicious. Now, Sid Vicious is their number one fan. He's the guy who invented the pogo. He's one of the great faces on the scene, has an absolute beautiful punk look. He's tall. He's ugly, but great looking. You know, he's tall, got a good figure, but an ugly face, perfect hair. Definitely looks better than Glenn Matlock. Um, And early on, he's trying to learn to play. And, and, you know, uh, is doing fine. It's, It's not an immediate disaster move, but it becomes this big albatross around the neck of the band. Then they sign with A&M Records, do this big signing ceremony in front of Buckingham Palace in March of 1977. Ironically, Sid Vicious's dad is a grenadier guard there. That that didn't come out in all the media attention. Uh, God Save the Queen is recorded and and then quickly pulled off the shelves because A&M c- cut them within a day or two after they have this long drunken bacchanal the whole day of the signing. You know, they end up back at the EMI offices. Steve Jones is allegedly, you know, having sex with the secretary in the, in the closet and or the ladies' room, and they're, you know, throwing up. And this bad reputation develops. There's also some airplanes. And I mean, at this point, reporters are just chasing them around everywhere they go. And there's this, you know, great quote of one of the you know sex pistols overhears a reporter saying did you get anything and the guy's like yeah i got i got two fucks and a shit from johnny rotten so this is the you know totally puerile level of reporting you know just try to antagonize these guys in a cursing so you can 
um, you know, write up a story. And this is where this movie, I think, really helped bring the band's perspective to light because, you know, Johnny Rotten describes how they're the most famous people in the country, the most hated people in the country. And because of the way McLaren is mishandling the finances, they're dropping Rotten off at the subway station to take a, a subway all the way home to North London to get out of there. And, you know, he's constantly in fear of his life. He actually ends up getting attacked with machetes. A machete sticks in his kneecap. He gets a razor blade slashed down in his arm. Somebody gouges a broken beer bottle into his face, could have lost an eye, goes to the hospital, and he gets arrested for suspicion of causing an affray. I mean, that's, you know, the kind of situation they found themselves in which um, is one of the worst things that can happen to become famous without the insulation of money and an and, and apparatus to protect you from what's being caused. This is like the Beatles if there was no Mal and no Van uh, to protect them, you know? And McLaren, for whatever reason, either incompetence or actual lack of concern, is just throwing these kids um, to the wolves like this. It's pretty unconscionable. Yeah, it's it's bizarre. And... I mean, it's unclear to me how much actual money anybody had. Like, they're talking about checks for 40,000 pounds and stuff here and there. But, like, still, there was clearly enough money for them to protect these guys to some extent. And what it comes down to is the management had no interest in in protecting them. Or just meeting their basic needs. I mean, they— never had monitors and never had working equipment they would do these big shows and, and the equipment would fail just mclaren one of the worst managers in rock and roll history it reminds me of the guy who managed moby grape in that they both of them had architected putting the band together which was essential and only they could do that but then they become this mismanager and you know really uh, destroys the band and this is where the other element that destroys the band comes in which is the infamous nancy spongen who is this groupie slash hooker from New York who's followed um, the Heartbreakers to London. And she's got, she's a junkie. And, you know, they, they really, everybody hates Nancy. I've never read anything good about Nancy, which makes me wonder, you know, there, surely there was a good side to, to, to her. Or somebody loved her. Or I would like to hear a story from her perspective because there's a huge element of sexism and, 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 misogyny in this but at the same time she is this junkie she's a palpably repulsive person just from watching the interviews and the footage i've seen and also the fact that movies like sid and nancy glamorized her and sid and for all the wrong reasons you know that movie was especially infuriating because it makes johnny rotten seem like this secondary character of no importance and the whole thing is this doomed rock star it's very similar to the oliver stone uh, biography of the Doors, you know, where they're lionizing Jim Morrison for all the wrong reasons, and it's just totally crazy making. But it is really interesting and funny to hear Cook and Jones and Rotten all just going off on how much they hate Nancy Spungen. Yeah, I agree with you. It would be interesting to try and find somebody who had a different view on this. And as you say you kind of make up your own mind pretty quick just from looking at her on the screen and listening to her talk. And you're like all your lifelong, this person is somebody I need to walk away from radar goes off. Like even just watching it on a screen, you're like, get me out of here. 
So maybe that's just editing, but I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, she just reeks of toxicity. And Johnny Rotten has the quote of what a nightmare it was to watch Sid become the biggest rock and roll idiot you've ever imagined in your worst nightmare. You know, and this is a childhood friend of his, somebody he really loves and that he thought was a creative, talented person and who I do believe was a talented and creative person. I don't think he was suited to be a bass player, but I think if he had been a singer in, a, in his own punk band, he could have done um, some amazing stuff. But that's not the hand he was dealt. And let's hear our last track. This is uh, No Fun, the Stooges song from Winterland at their last show. This is the Johnny Rotten's last word on the Sex Pistols. And that was the Sex Pistols at Winterland, January 1978, January 14th, their last song of their last show. Did you ever get the feeling you've been cheated? Which at the time seemed like this really cynical, nihilistic statement, and people didn't really know what to make of it. But now when you hear Johnny Rotten's perspective, it was like, look, we didn't have working monitors. Um, the bass player that I've been working you know, for this entire tour to keep him dry and clean off of heroin, we've been through the withdrawals. I've been drinking my ass off just to keep him... Uh, you know, entertained and distracted. And McLaren shows up and immediately hooks him up with heroin. And so, you know, plays it, couldn't play anyway. And then when he's all smacked out, he's even worse. And so, you know, Rotten literally felt cheated. He was like, look, we're a great rock and roll band and we didn't get a chance to show people what we can do. You know, and but before we get to the American tour, there's one last tour of England, the Spots tour, Sex Pistols on tour secretly. They, you know, really had to twist McLaren's arm because he's saying, look, you're not making you're not doing any gigs. You're not making any money. I don't have any money to give you. And so they say, hey, get us some gigs. And so he does. These are legendary shows. Um, they were playing small clubs in England. They had a legit following in England. People would really like them for the music. The Christmas gig that they played, their last show in England, was a benefit for the children of striking firemen. Um, you know, so there's some good vibes happening amidst all the craziness. And we didn't even talk about the whole God Save the Queen, you know, massive controversy where they put out a song called God Save the Queen that's this ironic, satirical take on royalty during the Queen's 25th Jubilee celebration. You know, and they go down the Thames. And get arrested. That was a brilliant stunt on McLaren's part, booking them to play a, a boat following the, the Queen. I mean, that, that was pretty smart. But then they book him for this American tour. Two weeks, mostly through the South, which McLaren claims he did on purpose to engineer disaster and 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 riot and, and violence. And you know, they're being followed by the CIA and the FBI and the media and you know, it was this massive circus. I can remember as a kid hearing a little bit about it on the nightly news. They, they got a clip in the movie of, you know, Don Kirshner's rock concert is going to feature this band and that band and the outrageousness of the Sex Pistols, which does not mean they got to play, you know, a cool set like they did on the Manchester TV show that Tony Wilson put together a few months ago where they got a chance to show what they could do. No, they're just this freak show. And, you know, the American 
audience that they show, whether it's the idiot who tried to attack Sid Vicious and admits he was trying to hurt him, you know, and, and gets and then is affronted and shocked when Vicious clouded him over the head with the bass. But the people who claim they like the Sex Pistols are even worse. I mean, there are people who are dressing up as crazy as they can, but are completely getting the wrong end of the stick. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. And I've always been I've always been fascinated by the fact that they came through San Antonio, Texas on that tour. And it just yep. it doesn't make any sense at all, but it, it's it's kind of part of of Texas legend at this point. But it, it's certainly, you know, seeded a, an entire punk movement in Texas. I mean, everybody who was everybody at the Raul scene in Austin in the 70s made that trek to to San Antonio. And the same with people from Houston and Dallas. I mean, they were reaching people in a weird way, even if it wasn't, uh, I mean, it was at the cost of being pelted with beer bottles and attacked every night, you know. And, um, and that's the other funny thing is, you know, there's a story about Rotten, uh, doing a radio show in San Francisco before the Winterland gig and, and spewing just all this homophobic nonsense, which results in like two station wagons full of burly 49ers fans showing up at the station. And Cook and Jones just wreck these clowns. You know, <laughs> 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 you know Sid Vicious famously couldn't find his way out of a paper bag, and but and he's the one, you know, overindulging in violence and all this stuff in the stage show. But Cook and Jones, you know, um, were a whole different level of of hoodlum. So anyway, but yeah, I mean, just just total self destruction. The band collapses. Rotten finally quits at the at, after the Winterland gig. Tries to save the band. He tells you know Cook and Jones, look, let's get rid of Malcolm. Let's keep going. He says he would have fired Sid in a heartbeat. And it's interesting to think what they might have done. They could have brought in Ja Wobble, who becomes a great bass player for PIL. Could have brought in Keith Levine, I mean, who becomes a guitarist for, for PIL. I don't think that would have worked. He'd already been kicked out of the clash. I mean, he was his own force, and Jones didn't need anybody else. But anyway, I mean, all of them by this point, have reached the conclusion, oh, whoops, here's what we should have done. It's obvious in retrospect. And they do ultimately in the 90s and 2000s do these, you know, the Filthy Lucre tour, and they get their induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and they actually make some money um, in these later tours in the 90s and 2000s. But To be clear, do, though, they pointedly declined to attend the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction and, yes. uh, and say that it is uh, bullshit. Yes, and I think they're right, and you know they they it was a unique sweet spot because by the time they got back together and reunited, nobody had any expectations. Rock and roll was basically dead after the death of Kurt Cobain, and people were just fine. Okay, you're going to get back to together and do a cash in tour and make no bones about it. Fine, we'll come see it. You know, thousands of people come to see it, and that's you know one of the things is like this is a band that had just massive unrealistic expectations they were so radical and they made such an impact that i remember the original rolling stone record guide or the second edition gave nevermind the bullocks four stars instead of five which is just ludicrous you know and they're like whining oh it turns out they were just a singles band it's like what what did you want like a triple album of genius you know i you know it's just like the expectations were set so high it's crazy so we need to get to the recommended listening Nevermind the Bullocks, obviously. Uh, the B-sides that I played that aren't collected on Nevermind the Bullocks are well worth it. Great Rock and Roll Swindle, I think, is worth watching just for the Sid Vicious performances. Um, and there's some fun stuff on the on the record, but at the same time, it's this total just shitting in the face of the legacy. And, you know, I want to end with Johnny Rotten's quote um, 
of you know, when he's crying at, in the movie talking about Sid, and he says, I've lost my friend. God, I wish I was smarter. You could look back on it and go, I could have done something. But they just turned it into making money. Ha, ha, ha. I'll hate them forever for doing that. You can't get more evil than that, can you, Julian? And I think that's right. Like, these kids were making art. They were trying to express some truth, make some great music. And people like McLaurin are claiming to be laughing all the way to the bank. But the thing about it is, like, you know, he got maybe 100,000 pounds and then pissed it away making a movie. And in the doing, he killed this multi-million dollar property. I mean, you know, it, it's it's just so colossally short-sighted and stupid. But at the same time, if it hadn't happened the way it happened, they might have just become just another rock band that didn't mean anything. As is, they're this absolute legend. Yeah, it's really hard to tell. It's clearly, clearly a tragedy the way it, it all ended with... Sid, uh, yeah. but whether or not it's a tragedy that the Sex Pistols as a unit didn't go on is is a lot harder to parse. Because I think Public Image are an amazing band, and I think yeah, Lydon moving forward and doing that, uh, much like a lot of his peers, you know, went in a more experimental direction after his first big punk band, and really like made continue to make compelling music. And I've seen Public Image play live a number of times, and they're terrific. Uh, so, you know, say what you will, you know, like, it, it's hard It's hard to know if, if we needed five more Sex Pistols records. I do think it's interesting, too, in some interview I, I read with, with John Lydon, he, somebody asked him about, Glenn Matlock and him being the mastermind of all the music. And he said, well, if you want to talk about who the musical one is, like, what have we done since? And I was kind of like, oh, yeah. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. But at the same time, <laughs> you know, Matlock's band after that, the Rich Kids, had at least one really brilliant song, which was The Ghost of Princes and Towers. The whole album is pretty good. Um, and you know, Steve Jones and Paul Cook had a band called The Professionals. There's a movie called um, Ladies and Gentlemen's The Fabulous Ladies and Gentlemen The Fabulous Stains, in which they play um, multiple sets in in that movie. It, highly recommended. I think The Professionals didn't make that big progressive leap and and have some okay songs. I think they're worth a listen. But yeah, it didn't do anything comparable to PIL. But at the same time, Matlock and Jones had a real magic and this anthemic sound that for all the virtues of PIL, it was an alternative band. It never was a mainstream band, which was kind of the magic of the Sex Pistols, that they had this anthemic rock and roll sound that I think was far and away the best platform for Johnny Rotten ever. And, um, you know, so so it is, it's just frustrating. It's fun to think about what they might have done because Jones definitely had this anthemic sound, great guitar player, Matlock, a great songwriter. So, yeah, you know. And also, I think it's worth checking out um, the band The Vicious White Kids, which was Sid Vicious backed up by Glenn Matlock and Rat Scabies of the Damned. And I think um, somebody else from uh, The Rich Kids did one set, and he later – duplicated that same basic set with a band called the idols that featured killer Kane of the New York dolls and Jerry Nolan of the New York dolls. And all of that makes a case that Sid vicious was, 
um, a pretty solid punk rock singer. He was no Johnny Rotten. He wasn't a brilliant genius, but charismatic as all get out when he's doing those Eddie Cochran songs and doing my way. I mean, I think his performance of my way is one of the brilliant punk rock statements of all time. The question is whether he got what he was doing. Um, probably not, <laughs> but, but at the same time, you know, he's this iconic figure and he was just a kid and uh, you know, he really, I mean, he spent time in Rikers Island and, and it's unclear who killed Nancy. I mean, people who knew him just say that's just impossible that there, there was, you know, no way. And that, and they were associated with all kinds of shady people. And, you know, so we'll never know what the instance of that was, but there's no way around it. His end was just an absolute tragedy. And he went through living hell with the heroin addiction. He loved Nancy, even if nobody else did. So he had this grief and guilt and this whole horrible experience. And Rikers Island is still a hellhole and was a hellhole then. You know, not something I would wish on anybody, particularly somebody who's infamous. Um, you know, so anyway, that's our take on the Filth and Fury. Final thoughts, Justin? Anything else you want to add? I just want to say it's a good movie. It's a good rock doc, you know, and we're doing this whole series because we like rock and roll documentaries. And, you know, I like to point out about the different movies we talk about, like what makes them different than the big formula that we're so used to today, you know, and this movie is from 2000. It's kind of before the codification of the rock doc. Uh, so it's not going to feel like, wrote you know you're not gonna it's not the sort of post vh1 behind the music rock doc uh but they talk to all the people who matter that they can the footage that they've managed to put together is great the, all the ways that they tie in as you said the various uh english cultural things that that are pertinent and then my very favorite is all the outraged adults uh that really bring home like what this band was doing to the psyche of of England. It's just a terrific film. Absolutely. And we'll be back next time to talk about The Year Punk Broke. For Justin Bankston, this is Nate Wilcox. Thanks for listening. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate and Justin will return to discuss the classic 90s documentary, 1991, The Year Punk Broke. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. Let It Roll is dedicated to the memory of Ed Ward, Russell Thomas, and Danny Park. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 